Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. So if you found your scripture, Exodus chapter 3, did I tell you what verse yet? No? Okay, verse 9. This chapter, chapter 3 of Exodus, chapter 3 and chapter 4, is Moses who God used to uh, write the law, and he was well qualified because of his credentials to write the Torah, Moses and God are having a conversation, chapter 3, chapter 4. It's a conversation. So we're, we're parachuting into this conversation. God is trying to get Moses motivated to do something. <laughs> now, Moses is not a lazy guy. He's, like, he's very capable. Uh, just his whole upbringing, if you read... A little ahead, you know how God supernaturally preserved his life. God was planning something, uh, just raising him up in Pharaoh's courts. He was a prince of Egypt, raised in Pharaoh's courts, though he was Hebrew. And then he did a few stupid things, and he was running for his life, and, and ended up being a shepherd looking after a whole whack of sheep. And he got married, had some kids, and then he did again, you know, just being negligent and And God just had to straighten some things out regarding the whole issue of circumcision. So there's all kinds of stuff in Moses' life. But God is wanting Moses to know, to know, to know that God has a plan and a purpose for him. The reason we're sharing this text is, first of all, it's biblical. Secondly, his life is really, has been ever since used as an example. That God, God's call is not just for the, for the brass, for the big people. His call is for everyone who would open their hearts to say yes to everyone. And you see this dialogue begin to take place, chapter 3 and chapter 4. And I'm just going to pick a few verses. So chapter 3, verse 9, we're going to pick it up here, verse 9. God is speaking to Moses. He says, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now go down to chapter 4, verse 1. Here's Moses' response. I mean, what should Moses' response to be? God says, Moses, I want you to go and be my deliverer. What, what, in one word, what should Moses' response be? Okay, good. Yes. (laughs) Isn't that right? Yes. (laughs) Not too complicated. Yes. Yes. But no, it gets a bit complicated here. Moses responds. He says, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Verse 2, God speaks. The Lord said, what's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Father, I pray that you would help us. To understand how this is not simply a story of Moses. It's our story. It's a story of you calling us to respond to a need that is taking place right now in 2023. And Lord, not one of us here is exempt from that. Not one of us in the sound of my voice, not one of us who has read these words is exempt from this conversation you want to have with us. It's not about just Moses. He's the example. It's about you speaking to me, to us. 
So Lord, help our ears to hear what it is your voice is saying, but not just what you are saying, that God, we would also respond, not in the way saying, but who am I, but that Lord, we would really know, we would really know that if you've called us, you will equip us. Grant that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to, want to roll this back a bit again. Did you pick it up, verse 9? Can we go back to verse 9? Chapter 3, verse 9. God is speaking. He says, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. Two things are taking place. And he says, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Two things. Number one, God hears and God sees. God hears and God sees. He hears the cry. He hears the cry. When I came in this morning, the worship team was rehearsing. And I came in, I sat down. I just began a little preparation before the rest of everybody came. And the song I came into was the uh, first song, uh, Trading Our Sorrows. And I, I just knew there had to be. I mean, you don't have words like that without a story behind it. So I, I Googled it, right? You Google those things. So I Googled it. It's like, what's the story behind the song? And Daryl Evans, who wrote the song, composed it, uh, he was a worship leader. And really, he's a name that very few people know. And he actually prefers it that way. He wants, again, to deflect the glory to God. And what was happening, he was leading worship in his church, and it was just, it was just live worship, and the song hadn't been written. And they were just, just spontaneous worship. Spontaneous worship means you're kind of in between songs, and you just don't stop and go, stop and go, stop and go. You just pause, and you just lift up the name of Jesus, and you just begin to love on him. Invite the Holy Spirit's interaction. And just, you worship him. You just worship him. Spontaneous worship. And they were just having spontaneous worship, and they began to talk about, God, I'm just, there's a lot of sorrow there. There's a lot of pain here. There's a lot of brokenness here. God, we're just, we're turning it over for your joy. We're turning it over. We're, we're exchanging it. Because, and it's biblical. Uh, Psalms 30. Read Psalms 30. It's biblical. Turning the sorrows. He's, he's exchanging it. He's taken our sorrows. He's taken our pain. And so they began to just kind of spontaneously speak that, and and, and what was in the mind of him and the worship team was this, that they were washing each other's feet in worship. I remember reading that. I shared that with the worship team earlier. And that really hit me. I don't know if it hits you, but it really hit me. They were washing each other's feet in worship. Now, back in the day, they would wash each other's feet because you walked with sandals, sometimes bare feet, and it got really dusty, got really sticky, got really... And where you walked back in the day is where also camels and donkeys and dogs and all... They, they walked and they pooped there too. And so you got dirt and poop on your feet. I mean, how do you say it, right? You got it on your feet. So when you talk about stinking feet, it's not just because they stink because they came out of hot shoes. They stink because there's stuff on them. So when you came into a home... And you would fellowship, and typically they didn't sit around and they're, you know, lazy boys like we do. They often would, would recline. And, and, and so you're, like, your neighbor's feet were your business, and your feet were their business. And, and so it was, it was the right thing to do to wash feet. They would have a bowl, and, and they would wash the feet, and often the servant, or the least of them, would wash the feet, and then they would go in and, okay, that's the process. Biblically speaking, they did that all the time. There's still nations in the world, they do that. They still come in and they wash their feet. There's a number of places that still practice that. We don't do it here. It's a, it's a strange practice for us. 
But if you can picture in the story of Daryl Evans, when they were worshiping in worship that morning, they were washing each other's feet in worship. And I was thinking of that. That my worship, each other's worship, and I felt that this morning. Lori talked about hearing just the, the worship this morning. In many ways, it was washing the sorrow, washing the dirt, just washing the loneliness away, just washing the heartache away. There's something about worship together that washes each other's feet. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, I'm getting blessed by it, so. What a beautiful picture of worship that washes each other's feet. God was saying to Moses, I can hear the hurt and the pain. He says it in verse 9. It's reached, the cry has reached my ears. The cry has reached my ears. The cry has reached my ears. There's a cry going up from the heart. I wonder, I wonder if my ears were just the better attuned, I would hear what God hears today of the cry of people. Those of us here, but those of us around, they might be driving Porsches and Mercedes, but I can guarantee you, if they don't know Christ, there's a cry coming up. They might look like they've got it together, but without Christ, you see, we were made to have God in our lives. We were, we were made and created in his image with a soul that longs for him. And without him, we will seek everything on this planet to try to fill it. And so we go after pleasures. We go after things that can't fill it. It leaves you empty. There's a cry that rises before him, and he hears it constantly. Not only the cry, he says, I, the cry has reached me. But he says, I have seen the way of oppression. I've seen, I've seen how they have been oppressed. I've seen how they've been treated. I've seen that they're not being treated as, as sons and daughters of the king. They're not being treated like that. I hear their cry. I see the oppression. Moses, he says, Moses, go to them. They need you. I want to rework that this morning. There's a cry that has reached the ears of God 2020. There's, he sees oppression. He sees where there is aimlessness and a sense of listlessness and even things that we don't know that goes on behind dark doors, secret places. We just don't know. And they're taking place and they rise before God and he says, you need to go. You need to be active. You, you are the light. You are the salt. Go. So there's a call here to Moses. And Moses' response, chapter 4, verse 1. But Lord, I don't think they're going to believe me. Like, I don't think I'm the one. Moses felt disqualified. He did not feel like he was the right person. Send someone. He's not arguing that point, but not me. And, and then this, that one part of the conversation where Moses says, verse 1, what if they do not believe me or listen to me? And they say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what's in your hand? Everybody say that together. What? And he said a staff. Now a staff basically is a stick. That's the title of my message this morning. The stick in your hand. The stick in your hand. We've all got a stick. We've all got a stick in our hand. Moses' stick was a staff. But we have a stick. It's something that is yours. And God's asking, what's the stick in your hand? Because that is a part of his plan for your life. 
His calling for you. That's really what we're wrapping this around this morning. And so I wanted to really bring this together because a number of us came into membership today. And it's not, this is not a member's message. This is a follower of Jesus message. What stick is in your hand? It's a good question for Wayne. Wayne, what sticks in your hand? What? So God is, Wayne, what's in your hand? Because so I'm disqualifying myself. I'm wanting to sidestep a few things. I'll give you this much, God, but no more. We have all kinds of reasons for that. And God's saying, what's, what's the stick in your hand? And this is really where this begins to unpack. Being a follower of Jesus is a lifelong process of growing, learning, and changing. It doesn't stop. I reckon I'm probably in the last quarter, or the last, hopefully the last, not, not the last quarter, but the last half of my life. And as I look at that, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, um, I, you never stop growing, learning, and changing. You, you don't get to a place, like you don't retire from that. Matter of fact, you probably ramp it up a little bit, ratchet it up, so that more change is taking place, and you are embracing it at a greater level. But that is discipleship. And I think probably to say it's a, it's a battle over control. Your, your faith is the battle, your, your issue of faith is who's in control of your life? Who's in control? Now, we say God's in control. And that's the right answer, by the way. Remember last week, Jeff was, <laughs> he was saying, if he, any question you can ask in church, the right answer is Jesus. And so, yeah, it is the right answer. But often we're not being really honest when we say that. Who's in control? Well, Jesus is. God's in control. Well, then what about this? <laughs> and we can begin to go through. There's a number of things that doesn't really look like he's in control. It's a battle of the will. A battle of control. It's always a battle of the will. And that's not wrong. It's the flesh fighting against the spirit. That's not wrong. But we as children of God must empower his spirit to be in control. We surrender. I give up my rights for God. But I must choose that. He will not for... Yeah, he can, he can do all kinds of things, but he awaits for my willingness and open heart to surrender to him. And so the battle of control takes place. I think one of the best pictures of that is, I don't know if anybody here has, is a military person, if you've been in the military or not. A number of years, Lori and I uh, pastored in a community that was just 10 minutes from a military base. And so we had a lot of military people flowing into the church, flowing in and out. They would come anywhere from uh, six months to a few years. Often, they would go between Edmonton and, and the base that they were right near our church. So we had military people in the church. We got to know a number of things. We went and would visit them on the military base. And there's a number of things that when you join the military, you give up your rights. When you choose to be a soldier and you go into training, you no longer determine when you're going to get up in the morning. You don't determine when you're going to go to bed at night. You don't determine the food you're going to eat. You don't even determine your hair anymore. Your haircut, huh? Gone. Okay, you don't determine what you want to wear if it's fashionable. You don't get to make that choice anymore when you join the military. You give up all your rights. You don't even determine how you're going to act. You don't determine your attitude. Your commanding officer determines every inch of your life. And your willingness to surrender to that will determine whether or not you make it. 
Because if you, if you can't surrender to that, you're no good in serving. You are a danger to yourself. You're a danger to the people who work beside you. And you're a danger to your country if you don't give that up. And one of the biggest things in the military is the battle in those first few months of the will, the battle for control. As the military begins to knock that out of you, and they do it in, in ruthless ways, but they got to change and curb your will so that there's a full surrender because lives depend on it. And I want to use that. When we, when we, in, uh, when we joined God's forces, it's no four-year military training. It's a lifetime. It's a lifetime of constantly surrendering, learning. God, I realize, man, I'm just, I'm just trying to run it myself. And I'm getting into trouble constantly doing this. And it's constantly into that place. That's why worship's so important. That's why getting together with brothers and sisters on a weekly basis, and even more than that, is so important. Praying together is so important. Because we tend to want to fight that all the time. And the battle for control, and this was the issue with Moses and God that day. The conversation was God was saying, listen, I can hear the cry, and I see the oppression. Moses, I've called you to go. I've called you to go. And Moses is wanting to retain some control here. He's saying, no, I don't think I'm the guy. And so this, this is taking place. And God is saying, listen, I've got, you need to first of all take a look at what I've already given you. Take a look at the stick in your hand. There's a couple of excuses I think we often come up with. I'm just going to do two this morning. Two excuses. Number one, clinging to worthless idols. It kind of sounds big, and it sounds like, well, I haven't got big idols. One of the biggest obstacles to not fully surrendering our, surrendering our lives is that we want things. <laughs> okay, I'm not talking about little, you know, bald-headed little brass guys that we have sitting on a mantle someplace as an idol. I'm talking about idols of things. Things. The first and second command is have no other God before you, that first command. And second is have no image before you. Have nothing that you aspire towards besides God. You see, anything you place ahead of him, anything, it doesn't have to be a little, little guy, anything you place ahead of him is an idol, an image. And so it comes down to this part, this, this, these uh, worthless idols. Uh, it can be things, things. It can be a nice job. But that's what we live for. It can be material assets, things. It can be money. Idols can be beautiful communities. They can be even our circle of friends. Now, none of these in and of themselves is evil. But when they have taken the place where God is no longer first and foremost, these things become something we strive towards. It's something we want. And so our wants are getting, they're not wrong, but they shouldn't be first. We cling to them. A desire for security, comfort, and happiness. I was just reading a book by a person who would become the CEO of World Vision. And he was a multimillionaire, head of a company. And God would take him into the position to be the head of World Vision, where he would live uh, in a very difficult community in, I, th I think it was Africa, he would move to. Uh, and, and his process, and I was reading that, and this really stirred my heart. I was reading how he didn't realize he, he was clinging to things. 
And because he was giving, he was giving his tithe to the church. He was regularly attending church. He was doing his thing. And God says, I hear the cry of the people and I see the oppression. And would you go? And he was coming up with every excuse under the book not to go. Until finally, if you would, he recognized God had given him a stick. (laughs) A stick that God wanted to use and he needed to lay it down. Clinging to worthless idols. Well, idols are when we put anything in front of God. One of the stories that grabbed my heart was Jonah chapter 2 verse 8. In Jonah, if you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah, God had gone to Jonah. Again, it was a city of Nineveh and God had heard the cry of the people. He had seen oppression. And so he went to Jonah. He said, Jonah, I want you to go. These people are ready. These people are ready. Go to them. And Jonah went the opposite direction because Jonah did not want to go to them. He was, he did not want, these were enemies of Jonah. And Jonah, no, not me, get somebody else. And he was, again, the power of the control for will. And Jonas ran the other direction. If you remember the story, Jonas gets on a ship, a raging storm. They throw him overboard. A big, great fish swallows him. And then in chapter 2, chapter 2 of Jonah is Jonas praying inside the belly of the fish. It's his prayer. And I think it's kind of, I've often been amused. What would I pray inside a fish? Right? I, I don't know. I, I don't think of it often, but I have to admit, praying inside a fish is just one of those things. You would probably, like, it's probably... In your mind, you're thinking it's your last prayer, I would guess. But he, Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, really actually hit me strong just a couple of weeks ago. Here it is. Jonas, this is part of his prayer. He says this. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. And I remember reading that, and I stopped, and I went back, and I go, whoa, I didn't see that before. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Jonah, you weren't. You weren't clinging to worthless idols. All you did was not go to Nineveh. You went the other way. There was nothing said about worthless idols. Yet that's what he said. Those who cling to worth turn away from God's love. God's, God's loving on them. You see, Jonah's worthless idols was doing things his own way. That was his idol, getting what he wanted in life. And it wasn't going to Nineveh. God wanted him to do this, and Jonah wanted to do that, and that was a worthless idol. You see what? I've always thought worthless idols are things. Even, even you know, money might be a worthless idol. But when I turn my will against God, and I cling to what I want, I cling to what I feel is going to satisfy me, actually becomes a worthless idol. Those who cling to worthless idols Turn away from God's love for them. I wonder how many who are followers of Jesus have turned away from God's love for you. We're clinging to what we want. What we want. Hmm. The study of Jonah, we would conclude that clinging to worthless idols actually is the real risk. Not serving God. Obeying God is the only absolute safe thing. Don't cling to worthless idols. Simply what I want. Secondly, excuse number two. Moses was, I'm not, I'm not qualified. We go back to Moses clinging to worthless idols. What was his idol? He didn't want to do what God was asking him. He wanted to live life the way he was living it. And that had now become a worthless idol to him. He was clinging to it. 
Secondly, I'm not qualified. Often we feel that we are ineffective and we don't have the right skills and abilities. We bow to feelings of inferiority, which tells us again and again that God can't use someone like you. God can't use you. I do hear that. Actually, I, I, I hear that all the time. God, God can't use me. Um, not in those words. Usually it's, it's um, uh, I'm not qualified. Um, I don't have the education. I'm not good with Bible. I didn't come from the right background. Usually it's in that type of framing. Uh, I'm not spiritual enough. I don't have, again, the right education. I'm not smart. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 corrected me when I used to use this as an excuse because that was my story years ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul was saying, he says, my, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Did you see what it says? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So if you're weak, praise God. His power is going to be best demonstrated through you. You say you can't, you don't have, you're not good with people? Praise God. You're the perfect candidate. You say, well, I get tongue-tied and I don't know what to say. Praise God. You're going to be the perfect person to say something then. You say, well, I can't remember scripture. You know, I get it all backwards and, you know, I'm not good at retaining information. Praise God. God's going to use somebody just like you. You say, I don't like being in front of people. I don't like talking to people. I don't like people, actually. I would rather go back to being isolated. Praise God, God's going to use somebody like you. Because that was my story. You know, I, I, you know, I remember you know, when I was in school saying, and I hated getting up for speeches and saying, oh, God, whatever, whatever I do in life, and I had no idea, I do not want to be in front of people. Right? Praise God. That's exactly, you get in front of people. Well, God, I'm, you know, I'm, not the, I'm not the sharpest tool in the kit. Praise God, I don't have to be. You know, if you are, then how is he going to get all the glory? But in your weakness, he is made strong. When you know that you haven't got the best stick in your hand, somebody else has a bigger and brighter stick than yours, and you want God to use that stick, and God is saying, no, your stick is exactly what I need. You need to believe this, my friends. You've got a stick in your hand. And it is exactly what God wants to use. Not one day. Today. Now. Today. So what is today? April the 2nd? April the 3rd? Tomorrow? This week? What sticks in your hand? Because in your weakness, he is made strong. So don't let the weakness be your excuse. Your excuse to say, I don't have something to give. You do. It's you. You know, when, when you come to this portion of Scripture here where God was uh, asking Moses to, you know, what was in his hand, and then to throw the stick down, uh, this became a huge issue of excuse for Moses. Actually, let's read this together. Can we do that? So we're going to go to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read this again, verse 9. I'm going to read a few more verses beyond. So Exodus 3, 9. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, God says, and I have seen the way the Egyptians oppressed them. 
So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh bring, and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Verse 12. God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. And then we go down to chapter 4, verse 1. Moses would answer, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. I'm going to say a stick. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Moses really struggled with leaving his comfort zone here. He already was established. He was not a young buck at this point. He did not want to go. It was as simple as that. He just did not want to go. It was a battle of the will, a battle for control. That is our battle. I just don't want to do it. I just, I'm comfortable. I've just settled in. I'm at that place in life, Lord. You know, I've just finally arrived. I've just finally paid payments on a home. I've just finally got my family in order. I just finally have the right job. I'm in the right position. I just finally moved into the right neighborhood. I'm just finally this and that, whatever it is. I'm comfortable. And I want to suggest, in the midst of our comfort, God is speaking. I hear the cry. I see the oppression. What stick do you have in your hand? You, would, God wasn't, God used the stick. It turned into a snake, and then, of course, it came back. Now, most of us, if it turned into a snake, right, you'd be going the other direction. Except my daughter. She'd run towards it. Yeah. She has seven exotic snakes in her home. But most of us would go the other direction. Safe to say. That's a pretty big miracle. Turn the stick into a snake and back. God was demonstrating that he's in control. He's demonstrating he can use even a stick in order to accomplish his wonderful purposes. You know, yeah, I guess God could probably just deliver the people through a stick. But God wanted Moses with the stick. God could use other methods to save people. Yeah, he's God. But he's chosen you with the stick. You following me? You with the stick. So whatever it is, the things that you are, you might call them your weaknesses. You don't think they're horribly strong. But God is saying the stick, what you have, what you have, he's not going to use it independent of you. Moses, you go with your stick. Yeah, God could send the stick by itself, I guess. But Moses, you go with your stick. He needs both. Well, um, there's a, uh, someone once said, God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. And I, I like that. He does not call the equipped. He equips the called. You say yes, and then watch how he gives it to you. If you wait for you to get all the credentials ahead of time, it doesn't work. But you simply say yes and start moving into it, and then you watch him beginning to put it in front of you as he equips you as you go. It's exactly what God wants to use, even if it's only a stick. The question is whether we will offer whatever stick we have, whatever stick we have for his service.
42 years ago, there was a movie that hit the movie theaters and it was the top movie of the day called Chariots of Fire. There's a scene in that movie where the Olympic medalist Eric Little's sister, sister Jenny, is criticizing because Eric obviously has a calling on his life to reach people. And she thinks he should be doing that full time. And she's criticizing him for being sidetracked by his running when he should be on the mission field. And in that movie, there's a one line where Eric has an epic response. In response to her, he says, in, in essence, he says this, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. God's made me for a purpose, but my stick is he's made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And Eric, in that zone with God, he placed his giftings with God. And in that circumstance, he was able to witness to the world as an Olympist. Discerning our unique calling is not, I'm going to give you credit, it's not the simplest of things. Too often we're so busy pursuing careers, we miss the call. Careers and calls are not the same thing. Careers and call. I like what pastor and author John Ortberg says. I want to quote. I put it up here in front of you. Just follow with me as I read this. John Ortberg said this. Society does not talk much about calling anymore. It's more likely to think in terms of career. Yet, for many people, a career becomes the altar on which they sacrifice their lives. In other words, you live for your career. A calling, which is something I do for God, is replaced by a career which threatens to become my God. A career is something I choose for myself. A calling is something I receive. A career is something I do for myself. A calling is something I do for God. A career promises status, money, or power. A calling generally promises difficulty and even some suffering. And the opportunity to be used by God. A career is about upward mobility. A calling generally leads to downward mobility. Isn't that good? Perhaps the demand of your career and the busyness of raising family can make it difficult to hear the call. Because God is calling. The late Mother Teresa once said, I am a little pencil in the hand of a writing God who is sending a love letter to the world. Hmm. I'm a little pencil in the hand of a writing God who is sending a love letter to the world. We're not the authors ourselves. We are the pencils. He's the author. We're just a little pencil. And once we understand that, we become useful for God. I'm a pencil in the hand of amazing God. You're a pencil in the hand of an amazing God. That's the stick. That's the stick. Are you willing to be open for God's will in your life? To answer it, you need to let go of the things hiding behind the fallacy that God can't use somebody like you. Whatever you've been through, whatever you've done, Lay it aside. God uses exactly people just like you. All of us. Because in your weakness, he's made strong.
Believe it. Rise up to it. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever you're perceiving, you must pursue your calling, not just your career. What's God's calling? What's his stick? You must throw your stick to that ground, offering it back to God in service for him. God wants each of us to surrender our lives to him completely, to follow him, to obey him, and to show his love to others. What stick do you have in your hand? Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.